Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, co-deputy editor of Film Comment. In a recent conversation with Chris Shields in the Film Comment letter, Academy Film Archive preservationist Mark Toscano said that, to me, restoration has a variable definition because it's not embodying any specific technique or approach. It is more of a conceptual process by which you're making sure that the film retains its qualities as a work that was made by a person, especially experimental work made by an individual. For this week's podcast, we wanted to dig a little deeper into Mark's comments and into the technically and philosophically challenging ins and outs of film preservation and restoration. To guide us through this fascinating subject, we invited two experts to join the conversation. Ina Archer, media conservator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and Shivendra Singh Dungarpur, founder and director of the Film Heritage Foundation. Both also provide details on some exciting new projects they've been working on. Ina talks about preserving the independent exploitation film Black Chariot and Jesse Maple's 1981 drama Will, while Shivendra takes us through the recent restorations of two major works from Indian filmmaker Govindan Aravindan, Kumati and Thump. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today, we have two guests here to discuss a subject that we're, we've been very interested in. Um, a few weeks ago, we published an interview with Mark Toscano a preservationist at the Academy Film Archive, and we were really fascinated by the issues around uh, film preservation and film restoration, so we wanted to dig a little deeper, and so we brought on two experts in the field. Ina, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, I'm uh, Ina Archer. I am an artist and a filmmaker. I work as a media conservator and digitization specialist at the Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, and I tend to use the term conservator over uh, preservationist, although the idea of preservation is is central to um, my artwork and my work at the museum. I'd love to hear, as we get into the discussion a little bit more, like why you prefer that term, because I think that those those words can be a little bit confusing for the lay person. And Shivendra? My name is uh, Shivendra Singh Nungarpur. I'm a filmmaker. And I run the Film Heritage Foundation. I'm the director of the foundation based in Mumbai. And we established the foundation in 2014 when we realized that we urgently needed to preserve India's absolutely endangered cinematic history. I mean, we didn't have a tradition. We didn't have a history of preservation at all. So the beginning of preservation, you would call it, uh, began with 2014 when we set up the Film Heritage Foundation. Shivendra, I was wondering if you could say a little more about what was that moment or what was the thing that made you realize in 2014, oh, we need this? Devika, thanks. Uh, actually, it all began, I was, like all filmmakers, we are so busy making films or and you're also a filmmaker in addition to being in addition to your work in preservation. That's right. I mean, I was uh, I was uh, at the top of my career in terms of shooting commercials. I've shot over a thousand commercials and uh, I was extremely busy uh, shooting four commercials a month. And uh, I just chanced upon an interview of uh, Martin Scorsese, which talked about the films which are being shown in Bologna, the restored films. 
and uh, the way they would show it. And, and actually that set me on a journey with my wife to travel to Bologna and physically see those great classics or great films from different parts of the world being shown and in a restored form. And that's at the fest at the festival, the Il Cinema Retrovato. That's right. Yeah, Il Cinema Retrovato festival. And uh, that was real eye-opener for me. And I remember taking a flight back into Mumbai and then traveling to the National Film Archive in Pune. And uh, what I saw was, uh, was uh, quite, quite a sight because, uh, you know, until then we, we, we took the archive as a granted that, you know, I was, I was a student of the, of the Film and Television Institute in Pune. And uh, we, we took it for granted that films would be taken out of the archive and shown to us. And we never really sort of figured out uh, the, where these films came from and what were their conditions and how many Indian films were there. And I think Bologna helped me to start discovering my heritage, the film heritage. And I went to meet... Uh, the person who started the film archive, Pikenaya, who was also our mentor, because when we were students, he was he was like a Henry Langua figure, um, having shown us this whole lot of films and uh, where he would get these films and the amazing way he was able to create this archive uh, with such limited funds. You know, when you're talking about India, you're talking about a very poor country, which is uh, if you if you tell people that you want to preserve films over over a lot of other issues of, uh, of survival, of food, of humanity. I mean, uh, it's really not, not the most important thing in terms of your, your, your daily routine, your daily life. So I think what began as a journey to make a film on P.K. Nair and to discover and travel all over India to find the lost films. And, and that journey turned into a film called Celluloid Man, which was uh, screened in, in over 100 film festivals, including the New York and Telluride and, and uh, Seattle, or many festivals, not only in the US, but all over the world. And not many things you begin, you actually start believing in. Uh, it wasn't like my advertising films. It was, it was true to its sense that uh, that, uh, that journey led me to believe that something needs to be done. What I didn't realize is when I started the foundation in 2014, that uh, it was not just one film industry you're talking about. You're literally talking about 10 to 11 film industries. You're talking about a nation which is making 2000 films in over 50 languages. So, so it was, I didn't realize that I'm gonna jump into something which is, uh, which is such humongous as that. And then uh, as it would happen that 2012 itself, we began uh, to work with the Film Foundation and the World Cinema Project on Kalpana, uh, which is the first film which was restored by them, which we were associated with. And uh, that began the entire journey of, uh, of ours and the Film Heritage Foundation's journey. And yeah, it's been seven years. And uh, I think 
we've achieved so much in these seven years, but there's so much to do that it really feels that you're beginning every day. You know. Going off of the journey that Shivendra has just described, Aina, I wanted to ask about how you fell into this profession. You know, what sparked your uh, desire to to be a conservator, as you said? We actually first met, I think, when, when you were studying at MIAP. Yeah, and that's when I was first studying at MIAP. And previous to that, I had wanted to go to MIAP. Which is the, which, can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's a moving image, uh, moving image archiving and preservation uh, program that's at NYU. I guess it came into being, how old is MIAP now? 20? No, it's not 20 years yet. But I'm not sure. It's um, more than 10, I think. Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm only going into that because I really, I went back to school after going to art school and a big break in time in order to, I went into cinema studies at NYU, anticipating that their um, preservation program was going to be starting and uh, went through the program and it was an, another 10 years before the program actually got rolling. So it was, uh, it was something that I, you know, was always kind of in the future. But I originally got interested in the, the idea of preservation because when I finished school at RISD, all of my Rhode Island School of Design, all of my film work was, uh, um, you know, thrown in my parents' attic. And sure enough, the next time I went <laughs> to look at it for something, it was all, it was in all different kinds of terrible conditions. And, um, and that kind of, corresponded with the centennial celebrations of film preservation. Which was when? So this would be, I guess, the early 90s. I'm going to put it around that time. It's probably a little earlier than that, but in that in that realm, and especially looking at also the rise of kind of independent cinema and, and women filmmakers at that time. When I went to the Whitney Independent Study Program, my particular interest was the centennials around film and what kinds of films got preserved and what fell off the um off the the track or what what was not of interest in these films especially films that had content that was racially and um ethnically questionable in hollywood films you know or, or short films other kinds of um marginalized films you know how do they figure when you're um talking about the greatest, best films, which ones should be restored, which ones should, you know, go forward in history. How do you kind of rewrite that film history? And it was interesting hearing about Savendra's kind of interest coming in at 2014, because I, you know, I was thinking, oh, when I first heard about film preservation, it was really a practice that came out of the Hollywood system. So the people who were doing the preservation, once they realized that it was something that might be important to do, was kind of run by the technicians who were the ones who were taking care of the productions. So it was kind of an accidental like practice that started that eventually got more um, you know, systematized and, and expanded. What originally motivated that preservation by those technicians? Was it a, I don't know if you know the answer. Uh, I think sometimes it was just personal, you know, it's kind yeah. of like, oh, we're here, you know, this is, this is how we'll figure out how to do this because, you know, I, the, the projectionist had a, a copy, it was in the library somewhere. Um, 
So I think that they were the people you would go to to understand how to work technically with the film. They had the those kind of particular skills. I can't remember as much. Well, I mean, people like Martin Scorsese saying like by film you know, deteriorated <laughs> or I can't, I can't, um, the studio did is, will dispose of my film or just will, you know, unless I do something about it, these films are going to vanish. Yeah. It's interesting because I would imagine studios would want to now, now I met probably when streaming became sort of the dominant platform. Now they're probably are like, we need as much content as possible. Let's have these huge, like, let's dip into our back catalogs. And I wonder if they, if, if they find sometimes that they're, you know, everything smells like vinegar and is, <laughs> and is melting. Well, I think that's, you know, and I guess we'll talk about it more, but I think that's part of the preservation, restoration, mm-hmm. digitization, you know, uh, triad, or it's that it's, um, you know, you can use that back catalog without necessarily preserving the film. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we don't have to keep a copy of it. And I, and I, and I, I think that, you know, hopefully it's more sophisticated than that. I, I think another thing that comes to mind, speaking of streaming, is when Ted Turner was initially colorizing films and the pushback that he got about that and the, the, the idea that, no, you don't, just take and slap color over a, a black and white film and, and say that it's somehow a new film or a better film, I think was something that was kind of central, certainly in my thinking about you know, what this might be, what preservation might be. Shivendra, I'm curious, you know, as you've been working with these Indian films, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 50s, what are the specific conditions specific to Indian filmmaking at the time that you've encountered that present challenges in restoring or preserving? I mean, how how were they saved and how were they stored? You know, first of all, since 2014, we didn't have a workforce. We, we didn't have people who understood how to preserve it. There was only Peek and I and a few staff members at the NFAI uh, who were also government officials. They were not really... Uh, preservationists or conservationists or conservators or uh, people who would know details about how to preserve films. Uh, we had a vault uh, at the National Film Archive uh, and uh, Pekinar had managed to collect films from all over India as much as he could. But if I, if I give you a basic statistics that we made about 1300 silent films and uh, like most countries, silent films uh, have been uh, have been the one which have suffered the most, and we've lost nearly in India. We've lost nearly ninety nine percent of it. Uh, so they are only in fragments, or and even the National Film Archive uh, only has about fifteen thousand Indian titles when we make when we produce two thousand titles every year. So so by nineteen sixty. Uh, 70 to 80 percent of India's heritage had gone and vanished. I have a just a quick question, Fina. Do you know the statistic for American silent films? I mean, yeah. Well, I I, I was going to say I think they say 90 percent, okay. but it's but yeah, <laughs> I would have to be in the same realm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, the film industry in India came in three port cities: Mumbai, Calcutta, and 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 Madras. And all three were, were 
next to the sea. And, you know, it's so to find material, especially during, uh, during the period of acetate or what you call safety films, and to find them in decent conditions is going to be a nightmare. Because of the humidity of the condition of the storage? Yes, absolutely. Also, I think the understanding of where to preserve the films, because most of the films were preserved in go-downs or offices or cinema halls or, or wherever they didn't need to pay rent, or even labs did not have proper air conditioning. So the big challenge for me was, was uh, to, to travel all over India, find films, convince people how important it is to preserve. You know, in India, we have that uh, tradition of uh, preservation of a different kind. We, we just want to keep things with us, even if they deteriorate. They don't, you don't want to part with it. You just think that there's some value in just keeping it the way it is. Without hoarding. understanding, yeah, hoarding. I mean, it, it's one, and, and also we 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 have a we have a very oral tradition. We don't really pass uh, our uh, tradition on to the generations to come. We believe in a very oral. So that's why most of our history books and everything were written by foreigners. Uh, very little has been written by the Indian scholars or Indian people on on history because we believed in an oral tradition. And I think we, we suffered so deeply that even when I was finding uh, not the original camera negative, but I was finding prints or dupes, uh, the first thing we needed to do was uh, to have people who could, who could really help to save these films, you know, um, whether it was saving the first Konkani film or first Manipuri film, or we, we were trying, still trying to find the first uh, few films here and there. And in order to do that, uh, I decided in my really busy schedule that I should go and do the course at Bologna, uh, the film preservation uh, course. So I did that. And uh, once I finished that, I, I thought the best way is to start doing these massive workshops. And I set my target for five years that I'll invite along with FIAF because we had joined the FIAF and uh, we were partnering with FIAF. When we were, can you, yeah. can you, uh, Federation of Film Archives, which is based in Brussels. Uh, it's, a, it's the body which, uh, which, which sort of, uh, it's affiliated to over 260 or 67 precisely archives around the world. Um, so, so we are all affiliated to FIAF and, uh, based in Brussels. And, and, uh, thanks to FIAF, a lot of our programming, a lot of our preservation policies, um, it's, its annual meeting is held every year. This year it was in Budapest, and the next year is going to be in Mexico. So we're able to discuss, consult, help each other. And now being a member of the executive committee, uh, my role has become of uh, being part of the core committee of, of, of the policies of FIAF. So we started doing these workshops and we started training. But the big challenge was how are you going to, to ask people to pay? Because because moment you say that you want to charge people for preservation, when people don't even know what the hell is preservation or what this is going to be and how do you create demand for it? So we had to really figure out ways where students could do it free. Uh, students could uh, apply from different startups of society, 
uh, even the poor students. But what we set is that we will not just stick to doing it in Mumbai, but we will travel to different parts of the city every year. And thanks to FIAF and thanks to all the archives across the world, uh, people came from everywhere to train people up. And we are very fortunate that we not only train people in India, but we started also because uh, our heritage is so linked with our neighbors, uh, because a Nepali film from Nepal would be made in Calcutta, or a Sri Lankan film would be made in, in, in Chennai, or uh, Afghanistan films were all made, you know, even the Iranian films. So we, we decided that we have got to work with our neighbors. And uh, very soon we had people from uh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh, Myanmar, uh, even Afghanistan uh, coming in to do our workshops. And in five years, we were able to train 300 people. And today, the National Film Archive uh, main strength is from the people we have trained um, and they're only for. So I think, I think the target which I set in these five years was to, to have the manpower is, is what, what I'm very proud of. And we will continue to do our workshops. We couldn't do it for the last two years. But more importantly, there is so much to save. And, and you know, when I talk about restoration, I want to just say that for me, restoration is a first world concept. It is not the third world country concept and the way we want to restore. It, it's very difficult. It's, it's okay to do, you know, the terminology of restoration is, is used in every different sense. Uh, somebody just digitizes and says, I, I've restored the film. Or he does a bit of cleaning. Having been exposed to the best of work and, and now being, being someone who's been watching and, and being to Bologna and, and seeing the best of work from around the world, I think we, we still struggle to get good restorations in India. And that's why some of our restorations which have happened in Bologna have, have been very painstakingly, and it's been very difficult challenges because none of them, the original camera negative survived. So we, we've always worked with prints and materials which are, which are you know, which has to be first saved. Uh, so it's, it's, been, it's been a really difficult journey and every, every year it becomes more complicated because we are losing more, we need to save more, the funds are less, but, uh, but we, are, we, we don't want to give up, we just want to keep going and it's becoming stronger from day to day. Yeah, so that's been our... Uh, I had a question um, about the, the training and the, what, what kind of films are you working on? Are they only commercial films? commercial um, Indian films and, and related films are, does that also include personal media, home movies, those kinds of things? Yeah. Is that? So, so you know, our, our way of looking at this is every sense of film, you know? So so while the restoration, the recent restoration of Thumb is is an alternative, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a commercial film uh, because we feel that the commercial films can get backing from studios or from private producers and things. But we, we went about even collecting a lot of home movies and uh, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, films on 16mm and Super 8. Super 8 was huge. So we've got a great collection of Super 8 now. We're digitizing uh, a lot of films of uh, that. But made by amateurs or filmmakers or just all kind, you know, they become all kind. Shivendra, are these are these being uh, stored at the National Film Archive? 
Now, so, so it's stored at the Film Heritage Foundation archive. So we set up the archive. We have now material of over 100 personalities, which include scripts, photographs, costumes, all kinds of props. And, and right now, we, we are very much like the Langoa setup. And we are in different spaces and different places because Mumbai uh, is, is, is on the real estate front is, is very huge. But what, but what our goal is and what our aim is, what we are really looking is, is, is we are on, uh, we've, we've already designed what our center is going to look like. Uh, there was some, some land which has been spoken to about by the state. And we are hoping with our fundraising and across, we will have uh, one of the big museums and conservation center, restoration school, library, and uh, and and the vaults, and that's our big goal and, and thing. So we, we have we have about five hundred films, and, and and a lot of films of uh, of of people who are amateurish also, like what you said, but also a lot of actors, a lot of stars, their films, which were shot on eight, sixteen, or eight, or you know. And, and we're collecting it not just on film, we're collecting it right through all tapes and everything. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. It's really interesting to distinguish between the kind of collection policies of different institutions and understand that a place, that the United States doesn't really have a national film archive per se or at all. Library of Congress doesn't sort of count as one? It, it's, it does in a sense, but it has a much broader uh, purview, so it's not specifically film related. So you have institutions like the Academy Film Archive and other smaller institutions filling in the gaps. But I know maybe you could talk a little bit about your work. And I know that because you your work for this, at the Smithsonian is sort of engaging with history more directly rather than just the history of a people or a segment of population rather than just, rather than an industry. Whereas like the Academy Film Archive is very much interested in preserving the history of Hollywood cinema or cinema in the United States rather than history as reflected on screen. I guess the, the first thing that comes to mind is going back to the idea of, uh, of conservator over um, preservationist, say, or archivist, although like, all of those are relevant. And my, uh, my colleague at the museum, Blake McDowell, is the media archivist. And that, you know, um, because we do have an archive at the museum. But the idea of being a conservator, I think, is language that aligns it in a museum context. And um, I think that might, that might be one of the distinctions in a sense that um, we want to have the same level of um, consideration as the, as the paintings conservator, the historical objects conservators, we are also conserving an object and the object has intellectual content on it or has um, you know, ephemeral content on it. For our museum, I think that something that we're working towards is to be able to use the films that we are collecting, preserving, 
digitizing as units unto themselves at an art form and a um, and you know in, in every way that film can be represented commercial independent amateur home movies that's something that we particularly are interested in um, that to, we have all of that as its own thing but also can be in service to um, helping to illuminate other parts of the museum's work. And if we're looking at the context of, or, or just trying to explore certain, you know, Juneteenth um, recently came up and it turns out that we have footage that was amateur films showing Juneteenth celebrations or, um, well, for the home movies represent themselves. But I think also at our museum where we are particularly interested in, of course, the, the works of African-American and the diaspora. Yeah. I mean, this is a question for both um, Aina and Shivendra. Like when you're dealing with materials like home videos, you know, how do you make the decision of what is significant and what isn't? Like what is historically significant to preserve and what isn't? Because I assume there's just tons of material out there when you're looking at people shooting like celebrations at home and I don't know, birthday parties and anniversaries and holidays, you know, um, maybe especially, I mean, it's a question that I think about going into the future too, like in the present day, so much is constantly being documented. What will we think of as historically significant? So when you're looking at, you know, the early 1900s and yeah, the early part of the century and super eight and 16 millimeter, like how do you decide what is worth preserving or saving? I know. I remember that you did a, a program at Light Industry a few years back on Pearl Bowser, on the films of Pearl Bowser that you had been working on restoring. And I think that there were some historically significant but outwardly kind of mundane films in that collection when presented at Light Industry were clearly very important. Yeah, there. Um, yeah, that was footage. Um, some of that footage was from um, Bed Bedford Stuyvesant Youth in Action organization, and it was uh, shot by uh, or directed by T. Beveridge, uh, a African American editor, filmmaker, and its documentation of um, Bedford Stuyvesant fashion show and you know material that was documenting the activities of, of that organization. And then some of the things in Pearl Bowser's collection includes everything from uh, African cinema, you know, examples of African cinema to smaller films that were shot. They would be equivalent of the LA Rebellion films, but from NYU or CUNY and films that were made in the early 90s, uh, going back to the, you know, the 60s. But I think the idea of, you know, what gets selected as being significant, these films were were um, donated by Pearl Bowser. So their, their significance is already in the fact that they are part of her collection. But we also do a home movie project where we invite the public to bring their movies to be digitized uh, at the museum. They can be, uh, you know, so they have professional conservators look at them, digitize them. They get a copy and if they agree, it can be made part of the museum's study collection. And so, and we also do a similar project with our digitization truck, which I'm thinking, oh, maybe we have to come to Mumbai with it, <laughs> and um, where you, you, we go drive around, um, or drive around, or we, we stay in a, a city for a period of time, and uh, the public can bring in their home movies. 
And so I think the value, what is valuable or not is kind of self-selecting almost. Um, and it's kind of like who brings things in, whether it's a family member, and it is it's all the same content, really. Um, hope, you know, parties, uh, graduations, baseball games, et cetera, et cetera. And then within that, there'll be something like um, films that we found from a woman, not found, but were brought to us, um, who was making films in the early 70s in school. And they're just beautiful 16 millimeter black and white films that use all kinds of experimentation. And there were her student films and we're trying to collect those films now. So, um, so I guess at the museum, another form of value might be implied by a curator or somebody kind of you know pulling something out. But for the most part, um, the importance is kind of based on the the love of the person who brings it in or the interest or might not be love. It might just be like, I don't know what to do with these. So I'll bring them. <laughs> so. I wanted to ask Shivendra also like, uh, you know, just the same question. Like how, how are you selecting when it comes to non feature like films, not made for exhibition, how you are selecting what to say, is it the same kind of open door policy or. No. Yes. I mean, in, in one way, yes, we are happy to uh, accept, but in India, you know, it's not it's not like people really come forward. I mean, this is something which, uh, because there is so little left, uh, and even if they have it, they've either thrown it away or or uh, or don't know what to do with it and uh, till they're guided. But what we started doing was 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 uh, approaching people whom we thought and and first explaining to them what they could have uh, because, the general perception was that they couldn't make out different formats or, I mean, the word celluloid, uh, for, for, it would not be understood by many people in today's times. I mean, it's, it, India is a very commercial market, extremely commercial, you know. And, and that's been our main thing, to reach out to as many people and to talk to them uh, that your families could be having these Super 8 or 16 or or the early home movies, the way you shot with maybe uh, a VHS or a Handycam or a DV Cam or DV Cam Pro. And in that process, we found that. But what is interesting is that before 1950, uh, what we found was that a lot of the ruling families, what we call the Maharajas, they had their personal films. And that was fascinating. And we have digitized a lot of well, I mean, I mean, for people who don't know, India was ruled by over 500 ruling states. They're like 500 different countries uh, before 1947. And uh, each country, I mean, each state would have its own kind of people, own rituals, own, own way of, uh, own army, coin, everything. It, it was like, it was like different countries. And uh, we, we've been able to digitize quite a few of the Maharaja films, which really, uh, which is which is footages shot by people, uh, whether it's 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 the Britishers who are shooting it, or whether it's the Parsis, or whether it's the Indians or the royal family shooting it. So that footage is very rare because it gives you a real depiction of of India at that time. But what was interesting was that when I was in Bologna this time, uh, there was a silent film which was found with the pate. And uh, it was uh, it was a 1922 film called Behula, 
and uh, because because in those years in India when films were being made, there were a lot of foreigners as directors who would come in and uh, and shoot that, and that was a French director. So obviously he took took the print back and deposited it with Pathé, and we were able to see we were able to see one of the great actresses we have never seen ever in our life on our screen, and we only saw her through photographs. That was Patience Cooper. And her name was Patience Cooper. And she was in Bombay. She started a career in Calcutta and then Bombay. She was paid more than the governor of Bombay. And, and we only used to hear these stories, you know, Patience Cooper and there were booklets and she went off to Pakistan and married somebody in Pakistan, but we never saw her on screen, you know? And when I came back to India and I told a lot of film people, especially film historians that I saw Patience Cooper on screen and they said it's not possible because not thrives. And I said this film, Behula, now we're trying to get that film. We, we're inviting the Pathes to come to India to show. Uh, and that's the magic of cinema, that suddenly you find things not just in your country, but across the world, anywhere. And uh, you suddenly realize that, oh God, that's Patience Cooper because you've seen so much of our photographs uh, across, you know, booklets and things. Uh, but uh, suddenly when you see her on screen performing on a silent film, mythological, it's, 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 it's fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, we, we do get a lot of uh, material, but most of the Super 8 or that comes from the 70s in India. We don't have that before that. It was mostly 16 and, uh, and we get them in terrible condition. You know, that's, that's the real challenge. Um, I wanted to ask you, is it the same, you know, for African-American home movies, I think the idea was for a long time, and I think it's still true to a certain extent, that the films, um, 16 millimeter and uh, 8 millimeter films, especially, were people who were upper middle class, that they were the people who were able to um, afford that equipment. And, um, but as time has gone on, we realized that there is probably a little bit more than that, although it would be people who had some means. And of course, by the time you get to video, it's, there's, there's a, a, an opening up of the, of the kind of content that you see because people could have that, that, that equipment. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, I, I think it's the same in India. We, we, it's exactly the same. And as it goes further and further, you have more and more people using that material footage yeah has the indian film industry really moved towards um digital production in the same way that it has here or started to do sort of in the past 20 30 years we had an event in 2018 with chris nolan coming in to support the foundation and to talk about uh to really talk about uh, about film, you know, Tacita Dean and uh, which was called reframing of uh, film. Yeah, yeah. So they came, they came there. We wanted to revive that back, but uh, in India, uh, we we've moved very quickly onto digital. In fact, uh, you know, we're we're trying to to have screening still on thirty five and and sixteen, and we want to continue doing that. I myself shoot on film, so uh, I think we we should have had better support from Kodak and other other organizations um, who could have uh, really when when Chris came and I was I was able to get 
everybody from the film industry on a roundtable conference, including including all the museum heads, all the all the film festival people, including all the superstars and all the directors together on a roundtable. We discussed this in great detail, and you know there was a lot of enthusiasm among the people. They they wanted to get back onto shooting on films and uh, really explore film. And we had people telling them what a resolution of a 35mm is worth. I mean, the fact that we did tests and we realized that the resolution of a 35 is, can go up to 24K. And we did all that test with IMAX there, with Kodak there and everything. And, uh, but I think the follow-up with Kodak shutting the lab just before that and, uh, and People didn't know that, that there is raw stock available, but where do you go for all your post-production? And is it going to be that huge a problem um, to really explore the possibility of finishing a film, especially in a commercial setup where there's deadlines, time, you know, time is money and those kind of things. For independent filmmakers, yes. I mean, you could experiment, you could work uh, with film and also, a lot of independent filmmakers were, were doing their post-production in Germany and, and other places. But, but I think we, we weren't able to capitalize as well as we thought we, we could have uh, with, because we lacked that support. We lacked that support from Kodak and lots of other people uh, who, who should have. So right now we are struggling as far as film is concerned. Um, but there are, I mean, you know, I keep saying it, there's so many people who want to shoot on film. Um, I mean, 16mm, there's still a lot of people shooting on film, but uh, on 35 or the big format, uh, there are people who want to shoot on film. But unfortunately, there are very few cinema halls remaining uh, which can actually project a film on 35. But when Chris came, I managed to get a 70mm projector and we projected his, uh, his uh, we projected Dunkirk on film. Um, we projected that on film, and we, but we also did uh, other 35mm screenings. We did 16mm screenings. We did all that. It's so interconnected, right? I mean, that's what this is making me think of, like preservation, exhibition, you know, funding. I mean, you need uh, the whole infrastructure needs to be in place to make one thing worth the other thing and then that thing worth the other thing, yeah. You know, you know Devika, today I was very depressed when I saw uh, on the net and I called up my wife and I and I said, she, she's not in Bombay, she's in Jaipur. And I said, look at the New York Film Festival programming. Um, there, there is that alternative cinema. There are lots of films, a festival with 16mm screenings, three minutes, four minutes, six minutes. And, and this is what I've been wanting to do, you know? And you, you said it right. Everything goes hand in hand with it. You need an infrastructure. You need you need to save those films. You need those films to Technicians, be... Technicians, audiences, yeah. And, and, and it's not just possible unless you get everything together to go with it. And that's why we want to build that center. We are hoping. Uh, but the only way to do it is to remain positive, to have that energy and to feel that you can do it. And I think only then we could move to that way of looking at the world where, you know, I'm, I'm extremely jealous of seeing what New York is going to be able to view those great films. 
Yeah. And last year, a film that you worked on played at the New York Film Festival, Kumati. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you, can you talk a little bit about specifically the process of restoring that film, what that was like? And then before we before we kind of wrap things up, but we want to hear from Ina a little bit about some uh, projects that she's working on too. Yeah, uh, like Black, Black Chariot. Chariot. <laughs> and that the the project will also sounded interesting to me. Yeah, you mentioned right. So so actually, uh, we worked on Kumiti and Thump, uh, both by this uh, amazing filmmaker Arvindan, um, who was who was part of the Indian New Wave, uh, and he was from Kerala really meditative films and uh, almost documentary style in many ways, but uh, he, he, he used to have a stylistic fantasy approach to a lot of his work and uh, so rooted in, in, his, in his land or his, his, his uh, ethos and his people and, 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 and the beautiful culture of Kerala would sort of emerge in his films. I mean, I mean it was so, so beautiful that it was really heartbreaking when I got to know that none of his negatives survived. And I suggested to the Film Foundation that we restore Kumati. And, and they said, fine, we restore Kumati together, but it, it, it can't be just one. It has to be two films at least of his. And we agreed to partner on two, that I restore one and they restore one. The other, I restore Thump because that was Mr. Scorsese's favorite film, or he liked that film from India, and uh, we got down. And it was really a challenge because first, we, we, we tried to find where the negatives were and, and they were all melted. They were like, they were like water. And then it was, it was through a fear of call finding prints all across the world. And then the National Film Archive luckily had uh, a print of Kumati uh, which we used uh, as the source material. In Thump, we had a Duke negative former print, but they were all sources were always a print. And, and the element work on sound, because Arvindan worked so deeply on sound. And if you don't have unmixes and tracks, and uh, I think the whole process of from scanning the material uh, and then working on uh, the manual uh, restoration of it without removing the grains and we wanted to keep it as original as possible uh, not touching too much on uh, on the originality of the film that's one of my main thing because being a filmmaker and and the love for grains and the love for the feel that the film has uh, I, I don't like too much of work on it and uh, we had the privilege of the original cameraman still there and Ram Arvindan the son of the director being there, who was also a, a web designer and a graphic designer, sorry, and a, and a photographer. And uh, I think together we worked, it was extremely, both films took nearly a year each because the elements were scarce. We had to redo the scannings, uh, carefully restore the film, then grading took a long time because Kumiti was full of colors. But what, one of the most fascinating thing of Kumiti, I must tell you, that the film had turned purple. So um, to get the exact colors of what it looked like, Ramu Arvindan went to the actual location where his father shot the film. And he took stills of the way it looked like now. And we brought the stills and we matched the film with that stills. It's the same season, same time he shot the film. 
And on what? On on the same medium that it had been shot on originally? The stills? Yes. So, so, so we tried to do the same medium. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, the processes have changed and things. But it gives you a fairly good idea to the colorist and to people that this is what the way it would have looked, the time, the light, the things. We tried to be as original as possible, even though the cameraman was still there. And uh, I think that journey to restore Kumiti that way um, and and uh, is, is is the journey which I really enjoy because because I always say restoring a film is like making a new film because it, it is not the same film. You know, you have restored it. You have touched it. It is a different version of the film. Yes, you can you can put those words and say it's as close as the originality. It's, it's like we've not done that. But to me, it's that journey of of, of bringing it back and, and a new set of people viewing that film is, is the most exciting thing, you know? It's, it's interesting to think of fin- films as being kind of living objects in that way that age and yeah. decay and, and, and change and, over time. And Indian films are not uniform, you know, because mm-hmm. the, the budgets were so low for these filmmakers. Uh, I mean, they would get some raw stock from here, some raw stock from there. If not necessary, there's the same raw stock is, or or the light is uniform, the budgets have run out, the lights have not run out. I think, I think always to look at it from that point of view, that you're trying to create art through through all the really difficult times, and, and especially for alternative cinema. But what, what emerges is that uh, that in the end of the, end of the uh, when I restored the film, I, I was watching it the way I'd watched it when I was a student at the film. Uh, that feeling is what what keeps me going on restoring these great classics because because you can just sit back and you can see keep watching it again and again like a child, you know. And I think that excites. That's what restoration is all about. Ina, do you can you talk a little bit about your uh, the projects that you're working on, Black Chariot? Uh, yeah, so I, and I think the idea, you know, um, of bringing back something that you you knew as a child and could watch it over and over again, I think um, for us, for these two particular projects that we're working on, it's a matter of bringing back a film that uh, never had the opportunity to really be distributed or seen. And, um, and so there is kind of uh, a restoration that's going to hopefully make that possible and give the filmmakers a uh, an opportunity, a new opportunity um, for their work. Um, one film I'll just talk briefly about is Will, uh, made by Jesse Maple in 1981. Um, and uh, the filmmaker is still alive, but she's quite elderly now. And initially she was going to be overseeing the restoration, um, basically color grading. Um, for the film, there's nothing uh, survives of the film except um, a, a a very faded print, like faded magenta completely, and um, so it had been uh, digitized once, or like one pass had gone through it, so that there was actually a film. But now we're working on really doing the grading, and Jesse Maple is one of the was really the first black woman to make uh, a feature uh, narrative film. Um, with this film, Will. It takes place in New York City. It's about a drug addict, who uh, a recovering addict, who um, meets a, a little boy, um, a homeless boy, who and tries to turn him around and show him uh, the, the virtues of, um, you know, staying out of the staying out of the streets. 
Um, and at the same time, it's helping Will, that's the main character's uh, recovery, is shot in Harlem. And um, it's uh, a really beautiful kind of um, vision of Harlem, uh, Mount Morris, and, and from the early 80s, that really shows the, the place as a community. It's a Loretta Devine's first film. Um, and as I said, the only thing that was still available to Ms. Maple was this faded print. And so we're having the opportunity through funding from the Robert F. Smith Center, a private uh, or trust money at the museum in order to do the color grading on this film and to bring it um, to, to try to, you know, while Ms. Maple can still kind of put the okays on it, to try to get it as close as we can to what the intention was when they were shooting it. Um, and uh, so that's so that film is pretty complete. It's just, it's kind of like, can we pull more color out? Can we repair scratches and that kind of thing? And, you know, the whole idea of grain and those, those issues, we're actually getting ready to send the film to Prasad. Um, that's a company, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It'll probably work with them, Savendra, but yeah. And this kind of like, you know, can you do these repairs? Can you clean, take out scratches, but still keep the film from, you know, developing new artifacts and, and you know, you don't want to lose its its personality or its, its, its um, sense, its, um, its grain and feeling. So that's one thing that we're working on. And hopefully, you know, this will be a chance to show the film in Ms. Maple's uh, still lifetime with her family, have, you know, the openings that it didn't have necessarily, uh, definitely needs to be seen within the context of 80s, you know, late 80s, early 90s filmmaking by uh, African-American women. It sounds like such a fascinating project. Once we're, once we're able to see it, we'll revisit and uh, and kind of, we'd love to have you back on and, and discuss it in more detail. Thank you both. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.